This is News Source 1 Mikiana. Welcome to your new afternoon and evening edition of News 2 Go. All the news and feature segments to keep you entertained and enlightened. With SRN News, I'm John Scott. Russian and Ukrainian delegations have met for talks. Meanwhile, a tense calm exists in Kiev. While explosions and gunfire have been heard in other cities in eastern Ukraine. EU High Representative Joseph Borrell says the European Union has given Ukraine substantial funding for its army. You know that this half a billion of euros will be devoted to provide defensive arms, but uh, high caliber arms, anti tanks, all kind of equipments in order to repel the aggression. The United Nations General Assembly opened an emergency session with pleas for peace and the UN Security Council due to meet later to discuss the spiraling humanitarian crisis in Ukraine. Also at SRNews.com, Russia has more than doubled its interest rate to 20% in a bid to halt a slump in the value of its currency. The Kremlin does not want Russian people to think that these sanctions are going to bite, although international experts are all saying that they will, and, and deeply too. And um, We're seeing a bit of that this morning already, of course. The ruble uh, fell to a record low. We've just learned that the stock exchange isn't going to open today here, and the central bank has more than doubled its key interest rates. Nevertheless, the Kremlin spokesman has just said, as he said before, Russia was expecting these sanctions and it has prepared for them. BBC correspondent Jenny Hill in Moscow. The average U.S. price of a gallon of regular grade gas spiked 10 cents over the past two weeks to 3.64 a gallon now. And that jump came after a rise in crude oil costs amid global supply concerns following Russia's invasion. The Dow is down 403 points, the Nasdaq off 78. This is SRN News. America's pastors ponder their own credibility. The Barna Group has been asking clergymen whether or not their local community considers them a trustworthy source of wisdom. 83% of Protestant pastors say yes, they think local people consider them credible. 17% say no. And what of their own congregations? 100% of Protestant pastors think the people that attend their church regularly do believe they are a trustworthy source of wisdom on a variety of issues. Michael Harrington, SRN News. A new report shows over half of a U.S. abortions are now done with drugs rather than surgery. The trend spiked during the pandemic as telemedicine increased and abortion pills by mail were allowed. The Gutmacher Institute report says drugs accounted for 54% of all U.S. abortions in 2020. That's up roughly 40% from the year before. This is SRN News. The International Olympic Committee moving to isolate and condemn Russia because of the country's invasion of Ukraine. The Olympic body urging others to exclude the country's athletes and officials from international events. MLB negotiations to win the lockout lockout extending. Management says a deal must be reached by the end of today's negotiations to salvage a March 31st start to the regular season and a 162 game schedule. The union has not said whether it agrees with that deadline and baseball has shortened spring training to as few as three weeks in the past. Sides were still far apart. Players would lose $20.5 million in salary 
for each day of the season that's canceled, according to a study by the Associated Press. It's harder to pin down how much the 30 teams would lose, but certainly large sums. I'm Julie Walker. More details at SRNNews.com. From Feature Story News in Washington, I'm Simon Marks. Talks between the Ukrainian government and its Russian invaders have ended on the country's border with Belarus. President Vladimir Putin is indicating no plans to back down. He's spoken today to French President Emmanuel Macron as FSN's Ross Cullen reports from our bureau in Paris. Macron and Putin spoke for an hour and a half earlier on Monday. The call coming after the French president spoke to Volodymyr Zelensky. Macron said he hailed the Ukrainian leader's of responsibility even as Ukraine is attacked by Russia. In his call with Putin, Macron called again for Russia to immediately cease its offensive against Ukraine. According to the Kremlin, President Putin told President Macron that he wanted European recognition that Crimea is part of Russia as a way to stop the conflict. Ross Cullen, Paris. At UN headquarters in New York today. Very clear parallels could be drawn with the beginning of the Second World War. And the Russia's course of action is very similar to what their spiritual mentors from the Third Reich employed on the Ukrainian land 80 years ago. The Ukrainian ambassador, Sergei Kislista, with that warning during an emergency session of the UN General Assembly, he also read messages from a now-dead Russian soldier sent to his mother, expressing surprise that Ukrainians were not, as Vladimir Putin had promised, welcoming Russian forces as liberators. In other major developments today, President Volodymyr Zelensky has reportedly signed documents seeking Ukraine's immediate membership of the European Union. Normally neutral Switzerland says it will honour EU sanctions against Russia, and Britain says it's placing more restrictions on Russian banks and businesses. Those moves coming after the ruble plunged 30% in value in Moscow, and the Russian central bank offered 20% interest rates in an effort to stem a rise on the country's financial institutions by Russians worried about being unable to access their cash. The UK's Foreign Secretary is Liz Truss. The government and people of Ukraine are facing a continued onslaught. The days ahead are likely to prove tougher still. The UK and our allies will have to undergo some economic hardship as a result of our sanctions. But our hardships are nothing compared to those endured by the people of Ukraine. President Biden is back at the White House holding talks with allies in Europe and elsewhere and making final plans for tomorrow night's State of the Union address, which will have the Ukraine crisis as its dramatic backdrop. Two other headlines. The UN says some climate change impacts are now irreversible. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change says 40% of the world's population should be considered highly vulnerable to them. And in Australia today, eight people died in record-breaking floods. From bureaus worldwide, this is FSN. With FSN Spotlight, I'm Simon Marks. Today, a look at Russia's invasion of Ukraine from the vantage point of the Baltic. After a weekend in which the EU, for the first time, decided to supply lethal weaponry to a country under attack, Germany committed to spending more than 2% of its GDP on defence, and Britain said it would support any private citizens who wanted to go to Ukraine and fight on Kiev's side, 
there are growing signs that Vladimir Putin has succeeded only in uniting the West. Riho Terras is the former chief of the defence staff in Estonia. He says NATO may enlarge even further as a direct consequence of Vladimir Putin's aggression. I don't think he believes that West has shown the strength uh, in the first hours of the of the combat. But today, even Germany has agreed on uh, on the weapon deliveries to the to the region. I think the best person to unify NATO and the Western world has been Putin himself by really uh, pushing. And Sweden and Finland, uh, th- there was there is a slight discussion, but they were n- really not applying for NATO. But I guess today the governments are really thinking that they should. Less than a week after it began, it is already evident that Russia's murderous onslaught against Ukraine is changing the world order in ways that seven days ago were unthinkable. The main news again, talks between the Ukrainian government and its Russian invaders have ended on the country's border with Belarus. President Vladimir Putin is indicating no plans to back down. The Ukrainian ambassador is warning the United Nations events in Europe could lead to a third world war. And the UN says some climate change impacts are now irreversible. There's more from us on Twitter at Feature Story. And that is the latest Feature Story news. Simon Marks reporting. D&M Resale Shop locates at 915 Baldwin Street Unit 1 in Elkhart is your unique store that is just like a garage sale, but inside a store. Great items for you and your home. It's a store of love run by a local pastor. D&M Resale is open Tuesday through Fridays 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. and Saturdays 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. For more information, call 219-229-1220. That's D&M Resale Shop in the City with a Heart. This is President Biden. Please pray for Ukraine. I will be delivering this year's State of the Union address on March 1st. Come watch it. Detailed forecast today mostly sunny, with a high near 46. East wind 5 to 15 miles per hour becoming south in the afternoon. Winds could gust as high as 20 miles per hour. Tonight partly cloudy, with a low around 32. Southwest wind around 10 miles per hour. Tuesday partly sunny, with a high near 46. West wind 5 to 10 miles per hour. Tuesday night mostly cloudy, with the low around 30. Northeast wind around 5 miles per hour. Wednesday partly sunny, with a high near 47. Northwest wind 5 to 10 miles per hour. Wednesday night mostly cloudy, with the low around 25. Thursday partly sunny, with a high near 35. Hi, I'm Pastor Joel of Heart City Church. Have you ever heard the dash poem. Let me read it. I read of a man who stood to speak at the funeral of a friend. He referred the dates on his tombstone from the beginning to the end. He noted that first came the date of his birth and spoke of the following date with tears. But he said what mattered most of all was the dash between those ears. For that dash represents all the time that he spent alive on earth, and now only those who loved him know what that little line is worth. For it matters not 
how much we own, the cars, the house, the cash. What matters is how we live and love and how we spend our dash. So what do you think of the dash poem? I think it's pretty good. I read this when I perform funerals to encourage loved ones who knew the departed to get up front and recall memories about this person's life, to tell us what their dash was all about. I want us to take a moment to consider our own dash as we listen to Psalm 71, which appears to be to the work of a saint who is nearing life's end. It begins, In you, Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, rescue me and deliver me. Turn your ear to me and save me. We can tell that this dear saint is going through some adversity and he immediately turns to God for help. And what is the issue? Well, he'll go on in this psalm to say that wicked people are seeking to bring him down. What a horrible thing to happen to a person when they're in the winter of their life. What hope might an older saint, a believer, have in such a situation? The same hope that has sustained them their whole life. Listen to verses 5 and 6. For you have been my hope, sovereign Lord, my confidence since my youth. From birth I have relied on you. You brought me forth from my mother's womb. I will ever praise you. Do you find this hope to be remarkable? I barely remember anything as a young person, much less as a baby, and much less my reliance on God at that point. Yet this man's faith moves beyond the limits of memory so that he can give God the glory for the whole of his existence. This man is so God-centered that he wants no part of his life to be remembered without his God's active participation in sustaining him. Now he'll go on again to speak more of the bitterness of his life, but he returns to his continual hope and what it produces. Listen to verse 14 and 15. As for me, I will always have hope. I will praise you more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteous deeds, of your saving acts all day long, though I know not how to relate them all. Again, his hope in God produces praise. He's counting his blessings, naming them one by one. And there are so many, and they're so great in his eyes that he doesn't even know how to relate them. He runs out of words to employ to communicate all that God has done for him. But that doesn't stop him from wanting to keep trying all the way to the end. Check out verse 18. Even when I am old and gray, do not forsake me, my God, till I declare your power to the next generation, your mighty acts to all who are to come. Here is a man nearing the end of his life. And as he anticipates declining health, what does he ask for? God, please give me a comfortable retirement. <laughs> no. Please, God, just let me relax and collect seashells on the beach. <laughs> Not a chance. This guy wants as much time as is needed so as to let the next generation know about how almighty God is. His greatest concern is that his grandkids and great-grandkids might miss out on hearing about all of God's mighty acts. And there is no more important news in the world than God and his mighty works in our history. Can you imagine going to his funeral, listening to his loved ones talk about his life, his dash? I think younger sister Sally would get up and say, 
All I can say is that he was just gaga for God. His daughter might say, Well, he had a most bitter life, yet he smiled all day long, and he would always say that all things work together for good because of God. And maybe his grandson would say, I remember he would read Bible stories to me until he thought I was asleep. And when he finished reading, he'd pray, and I'd sometimes peek to see his kind face, eyes closed, tears coming down, pleading that God would make my heart good soil for the seeds he'd sown. And God answered his prayer, because I am now telling God's mighty deeds to my children. Hmm. This man's dash from beginning to end was about the glory of God. And he even believed that it wasn't over. He'll later say that God would one day restore his life and raise him up. His hope in God never ended. Friend, this encourages me to finish my dash strong. So let's help our loved ones with our eulogies by making sure that they are a testimony to the greatness of our God, who, yes, long after this psalm was penned, showed us he does raise the dead so they can continue to praise him. My friend, remember who you are and who you belong to. Today's episode is sponsored by Data IQ. Good morning. Welcome to Axios Today. It's Monday, February 28th. I'm Nyla Boodoo. Here's what we're covering today. President Biden's historic Supreme Court nomination. Plus, the American employees who are happiest working from home. But first, today's one big thing, a financial nuclear threat. Cutting Russia off from the international financial system over its invasion of Ukraine has been referred to in recent days as an economic nuclear option. First, let me catch you up on how this has been playing out. U.S. Treasury action means that Russia's largest banks are already unable to operate in the dollar-based financial system. And the U.S. and EU also say they'll be targeting the Russian central bank's currency reserves. Every G7 nation has now committed to banning Russia's biggest banks from the dollar and euro-based international banking transfer system known as SWIFT. How effective can this be? And if we're carrying the nuclear analogy further, how devastating is this also economically? Axios' chief financial correspondent, Felix Salmon, is here to answer that. Hello, Felix. Hi, Nyla. Everyone's heard about SWIFT all weekend. First, can you help us understand why this is so important? It's the way that every single bank in the world talks to each other. Imagine like the universal language of international banking. And basically, what the world is doing is saying, oi, Russians, we're not going to let you speak our language anymore. If you want to move money around from one bank to another or from like a Russian bank to a foreign bank or the other way around, you're going to have to find some other way of doing it rather than the really, really easy and cheap and quick way of going through SWIFT. The more important thing, honestly, came a couple of days earlier when the Americans said the big Russian banks, Sparebank and VTB, they wouldn't be allowed to have correspondent banks in the United States. And so basically that means, at least for those two banks, that they're completely cut off from the dollar system and virtually everything still happens in dollars. So that's a really big deal. And then add on to that the central bank thing. Putin has $630 billion of central bank reserves. Well, suddenly, if he can't get at those reserves, then that's a really big deal. How is it that the EU and the US 
could prevent Vladimir Putin from accessing $630 billion of reserves in their own central bank. Some of the reserves he still has access to. And he's literally sitting on physical piles of gold in the central bank in Moscow. And he can take it down to his local goldsmith and try and, you know, sell it for dollars or something. But if you look at how central bank reserves work in terms of dollars, all dollars ultimately sit in America. And the Americans, as a result, can just freeze those accounts. Is this like the nuclear option economically? It depends how far they go. So the Europeans and the Americans have already said that they want to continue to allow Russia to sell gas to Europe, to get some kind of hard currency that way. And we're talking about quite a lot. So those kind of flows of cash are still going to keep on going. But the one thing we know for sure is that the ruble has collapsed. And that's just going to make it much, much more expensive for Russia to buy anything at all. And it's going to be incredibly bad for the Russian economy, which was weak to begin with, is going to become extraordinarily weak after all of these sanctions are in place. Okay, Felix. So we heard President Putin say yesterday that he was readying a nuclear deterrent level of combat troops. Is there any danger that these economic sanctions could lead to an actual nuclear threat? When Putin fights back, he's not going to fight back with financial weapons. He doesn't have financial weapons. He's going to fight back with the weapons where he has the most advantage. And guess what? That means nuclear. I'm not saying he's going to use nuclear weapons, but that is absolutely what he's threatening. Felix Simon is Axios' chief financial correspondent, and I should add, came back from his book leave temporarily to join us for this conversation. Thank you, Felix. Cheers, Nyla. A few other important things to know about Ukraine this morning. Despite five days of assault, Ukrainians have been so far able to repel major advances by the Russian invasion. But several news outlets are reporting a three-mile-long column of Russian military vehicles headed to Kyiv. A Ukrainian delegation is meeting its Russian counterparts on the Belarus border. But President Volodymyr Zelensky made it clear his officials would be asking for peace, not surrendering. And in New York, the United Nations holds a rare emergency special session of its 193-member General Assembly today. In 15 seconds, President Biden's pick for the U.S. Supreme Court. Without you, it's just data. Data IQ is the only platform that connects data and doers through everyday AI. Visit dataiq.com to learn more. That's D-A-T-A-I-K-U.com. Welcome back to Axios Today. I'm Nyla Boudou. For too long, our government, our courts, haven't looked like America. I believe it's time that we have a court that reflects the full talents and greatness of our nation with a nominee of extraordinary qualifications. That's President Biden on Friday, making good on his promise to nominate a black woman to the Supreme Court, Ketanji Brown Jackson, who's 51 years old. Justice Breyer, the members of the Senate will decide if I fill your seat, but please know that I could never Fill your shoes. This is the first time in U.S. history that a Black woman has been nominated to our nation's highest court. Axios' Sam Baker is here for more. Sam, good morning. What do we need to know about Jackson herself? 
Well, the most important thing to know in the short term is that she has a pretty good shot of getting confirmed. Judge Jackson was, for a couple of years, a federal public defender. She will be the first justice since Thurgood Marshall with any experience, whether it's as a public defender or not, defending poor people who've been accused of a crime and have entered the criminal justice system. That is a very real form of legal expertise that is not on the current court and that she would bring to the court. Sam, so she's been a public defender and a criminal defense attorney. What else do we need to know about her background? In a lot of ways, other than the public defender bit, she has uh, a very standard sort of Supreme Court resume, Harvard Law, clerked at the Supreme Court, actually clerked for Justice Breyer, who she uh, would be replacing. So she has sort of all the traditional qualifications to sort of be perceived as not too far outside the box, but at the same time has this really relevant experience that has been seen as as really controversial in the past. I'm sorry, why was that controversial in the past? When you're a public defender, you defend guilty people who committed sometimes pretty bad crimes. I think it's fair to say it's a bit of a double standard. There are lots of people who defend corporations who do terrible acts and nobody really bats an eye. But being a public defender, usually you have some very unsavory clients. What's the timeline here? Democrats have plenty of time because Justice Breyer isn't leaving until the end of the court's term, which would be late June, early July. The typical time is about 70 days, I think, between nomination and confirmation. Uh, So, you know, Democrats don't want to wait. It doesn't look like Republicans are going to jam up the works too much. So we're probably looking at something in in about that range. Um, But she would not be seated until the end of this term, which means she won't start hearing cases until the court's next term begins in October. Actually, this is senior editor Sam Baker, who's our resident Supreme Court expert. Thanks, Sam. Thanks, Nyla. The Biden administration wants to accelerate the pace of federal workers returning to the office, according to a scoop by the Axios politics team. But we all know that some people have been happier working from home through the pandemic, while others have been itching to go back to in-person work. Axios's Erica Pandy has new data on this. And Erica, it looks like we're learning just who prefers working from home. That's exactly right, Nyla. So these Harris Poll numbers clearly show that it's women workers and people of color who feel generally more happy working from home and who want to continue doing so after the pandemic. So here's just one stat. 63% of Black workers and 58% of women say they feel more ambitious when working from home versus the office. And just 46% of men feel the same way. So what's happening here is that a lot of the office politics, office dynamics tend to favor white men. So you see a lot of people who fit into that demographic eager to get back to the office for that camaraderie, for that water cooler talk. And other workers like women and workers of color feel actually liberated when they're separated from that that office dynamics and can just do their jobs from their homes. Maybe they're more productive, but they're kind of out of sight, out of mind. So as companies start to formulate their return to work plans, they really need to think about who gained what from remote work and how do we preserve some of those diversity, equity, inclusion gains that these numbers clearly show we made when everyone went home and did their jobs from there. Erica Pandy covers the future of work for Axios. That's it for us today. I'm Nyla Boodoo. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, and we'll see you back here tomorrow morning.
Data IQ is the only AI platform that connects data and doers through everyday AI. Data IQ customers turn complex data into tangible results, fueling use cases from the mundane to the moonshot, because it's only data until you make it a business strategy or challenge an entire industry. Without you, it's just data. Visit dataiq.com to learn more. That's D-A-T-A-I-K-U.com. IndyCar opened their 2022 season today, and what a race it was coming down to the final corner of the final lap, and we've got a new winner in IndyCar. Let's talk about it. Well, they're already beginning to tear things down and get ready for the 2023 Grand Prix of St. Petersburg. What a beautiful day here at Albert Witted Airport. And it was a beautiful day for Scott McLaughlin, the driver who was so highly touted coming out of the supercar series down under. But it took him a little while to, get him to come to grips with IndyCar. And today, he definitely found his grip. Qualified on pole yesterday and was able to come away with a win today. It's amazing to me how just it clicked by. It felt so fast this race. This whole weekend really in a lot of ways was absolutely blazing fast. And it's so great that we're here at St. Petersburg a couple of weeks early. We're actually starting the season in February, which has been needed for a very long time. We got to get the off season shorter. Um, but the crowd came out hardcore. This was a huge, enthusiastic crowd. I stood down and watched the race here in turn one, um, and every time there was a pass, no matter who it was, there was a big cheer. But certainly, guys like Herda, guys, especially Grosjean, Jimmy, um, there were big cheers for the big stars. So that was that was really fun. Uh, it was a fun atmosphere here. Uh, Adam Stern reported that they've sold more merch um, than they ever have. They got the merchandise out early. Um, you could get a T-shirt about pretty much everybody you wanted, except for Felix Rosenquist for some reason. But outside of that, um, yeah, I think it's a really positive start uh, to this 2022 NTT IndyCar Series campaign. So interviews were hard to come by today. Um, because it's a street circuit and it's because it's the first race of the season, there's a heavy media presence here. Uh, it was so hard to get a hold of guys. Luckily... Um, you guys will be happy with this. We got to talk to the Chung. So, uh, you know, obviously he was the defending winner uh, of this race. Didn't quite get there, but there's a reason for that. And, uh, well, listen to it in his own words. Uh, it was, yeah, it was a solid race. We had some, some problems that were kind of out of our control. Um, we, couldn't get, we couldn't get the car full, unfortunately, so we're having to make stops earlier. But um, it happens sometimes. But luckily, we had a fast enough car that we could feel safe and still be competitive with. Um, Whereas instead, if we didn't have a competitive car, we'd probably be 13, 14. So um, happy with fourth. Great start to the season. Um, you know, and so, yeah, it's, it's a good sign to come for our street course cars and, and stuff like that. I'm confident about that. I don't know about you, but that, that race felt short. A hundred laps, allegedly, here. What was the deal with that? It, no yellows. We all thought it was going to be a wreck fest. Why not? I'm, I have no clue. And especially with when's the last time we come to this place with 26 cars? And never, yeah, and only one person walled it, so um, yeah, I was I was really hoping I was short on fields, I was really hoping for a yellow, maybe make some of that deficit back, but um, 
No, it didn't come. It, it's it's felt so fast for what this race. This race is usually the longest street course that we go to, race lengthwise. Um, so, you know, when it's only I don't know how long it was, but it couldn't have been over an hour and a half or much further than that. So, yeah, no, I had fun either way though. On to Texas next. How are you feeling about your oval program for this year? It's a big unknown around Texas. You know, I think we've shown that we can be fast at Indy. We can be fast at Gateway. Um, we were fast last year or two years ago at Iowa. Um, so we have speed. Texas is the only place that since my rookie year we haven't been extremely fast at. So we have some cool stuff in the works. Roman and Devlin actually test there uh, this week, actually. So that'll be interesting to see. They have some good stuff that, that we can try. And um, so, yeah, there's, there's big changes in the works for Texas that we want to try. We'll see if they work. If they do, hopefully we're in the front. So you've heard from, well, one of the competitors. Um, let's talk about all 26. Here are the results for the St. Petersburg Grand Prix. Scott McLaughlin winning uh, and, and falling over, of course. That was very funny. Um, you, you New Zealanders, you Kiwis, uh, told us he was a personality, and I think we're finally starting to see that from Scott. Uh, he's endearing himself to the American fans. What a fantastic result for Scott McLaughlin. And it's important to note, because it's been said a few times, that the winner of the first race in the last two seasons has gone on to win the NTT IndyCar Series Championship. We'll see if that plays out. The guy who finished second, hey, he's pretty good too. He's a defending series champion, Alex Pillow for Chip Ganassi Racing. And what an exciting finish it was. And honestly, Alex Pillow, I think a lot of people have already been saying it. I'm not the first to say it. Um, certainly a very Scott Dixon-esque performance. Had a crash in practice, looked like he was nowhere all weekend and gets a P2 to start the year. Will Power was strong all day. Um, certainly there were some traffic concerns and Power certainly uh, uh, talked about it quite a bit. Colton Herta, as you heard, had some fuel concerns. That really took him out of uh, contention. Romain Grosjean was so exciting. Uh, they really were into him here. Uh, the crowd was just crazy, man. Uh, for Roman Grosjean, and I think, you know, there was a survey that came out today. He was the most popular driver in the series. It showed. Renus VK was an absolutely sterling driver today. Uh, Ed Carpenter Racing really, I think, nailed the strategy. Uh, even though he lost two spots, I think VK was one of the best um, performances on the day. Graham Rahal was, was there. He just wasn't quite all the way at the front. Scott Dixon uh, certainly looked like he had some bad strategy, but Managing to pull off a top 10, that's classic Scott Dixon. Marcus Erickson was really strong at the beginning of the race, but wasn't so strong at the end. Takuma Sato, from 22nd to 10th, a 12-position game. Um, fantastic for Takuma Sato in his first race with Dale Coyne Racing. Christian Lungard was struggling throughout this week, but ends up coming home with an 11th place finish. Pato Award and Aero McLaren SP certainly made some strategy calls. Uh, they took some swings at it. It didn't quite pay off. Jack Harvey was up 10 spots from his 23rd place starting position. Elio Castroneves and Simon Pagino, I would say this is a disappointing run for Meyer Shank Racing in their first race as a full-time two-car team. But perhaps disappointingly uh, the most, or the most, the biggest disappointment, Joseph Newgarden. And I just think back the last year at Barber. That big crash, that bad finish at the first race, a 16th here. Will we be talking about that 
at the end of the season. Felix Rosenquist, not a great weekend for the Aero McLaren SP team. Kyle Kirkwood looked strong, but uh, bad strategy bit him. Ditto Callum Eilat, who was up at the front. Ditto Alexander Rossi. Connor Daly, unfortunately, wasn't much of a factor all day. Devlin D. Francesco certainly was, but it wasn't for great reasons. Uh, the the front-running drivers at the end uh, were a little bit upset with him. Ditto Jimmy Johnson. Uh, Will Power, in particular, had some pretty biting remarks about um, how Jimmy raced to stay on the lead lap. Tatiana Calderon, um, in her debut for IndyCar, uh, three laps down, last car running. Dalton Kellett had some mechanical issues, unfortunately not able to cap off his best starting position of his career, um, and 14th. And then finally, David Malukas had a big crash, the only driver to crash out of this race. So, um, I'm thinking about Scott McLaughlin a little bit. And, you know, it was mentioned in the press conference a couple of times, but you think about it, really one of Scotty's best race races of last year was Texas. He finished second. And so you think about him having this great run in St. Petersburg at first. Then you think about if he can either match or improve on his second at Texas. Then you roll on to Barber, a track that he's seen before, tested on before. Indianapolis, a track that every IndyCar driver has a ton of experience on, the road course, of course. And then you go to the Indy 500, where really, if you think about it, Scott McLaughlin was, by and large, throughout the month, the strongest team Penske car. It was only when Simon Pagino really finally came to play in the race that he was uh, unseated with that one. So you think about Scott McLaughlin, and, and I think he's a real championship contender. And I think he's proving all of those things that uh, Roger Penske said about him, you know, three years ago. I mean, Roger Penske called him, uh, that said that he reminded him of Rick Mears for a reason. And Rick Mears, what a great uh, champion driver um, to think about, especially in these open-wheel cars. The rest of the the field, it's it's going to be interesting, isn't it? I think, you know, you look at Grosjean, you look at Herta. Um, you know, Herta would have been right up there, I suspect, had he um, not had fuel issues, for sure. Um, even McLaughlin admitted that he was the strongest guy, but you look at, or one of the stronger guys, and you look at Pelot, um, if this is a bad day for Pelot and you say he finished second, whoa. Uh, so Pelot's title defense starting out just as strongly uh, as anyone we've ever seen before. Man, I just want to drink this in a little bit. How cool is this? Uh, and you think back to um, to three years ago and, you know, when we tried to do this in 2020 and it didn't work out very well, um, you know, to have such a smooth weekend and, and have that great interview with Mario Andretti, um, it was fantastic. Subscribe for more motorsport content, and I'll see you in the next video.
This is News Source 1 Michiana. Elkhart South Bend.